Hello, and thank you for joining us for the first episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Karis Ellison. And I'm Sharon Shu. We're two friends sleuthing our way through the Peter Whimsy mystery novels by Dorothy L. Sayers. And today we're starting our investigation at the very beginning with Whose Body, the first Lord Peter Whimsy novel published in 1923. In the early 1920s, Sayers was struggling with financial uncertainty and, looking for income, asked herself what people were interested in. She decided that everyone liked detectives and the aristocracy, so she wrote about an aristocratic detective. In his first case, Lord Peter encounters two mysteries. One is an unidentified dead body, found in a bathtub that doesn't belong to him, and unseasonably dressed in a pair of pince-nez. The other is a middle-aged financier who appears to have vanished in the night without his clothes, without his glasses, and without a trace. If you haven't read Whose Body before, don't worry, we won't give away the whodunit today, but we do hope that, after listening to this episode, you'll read the book and join us again in two weeks for our second episode, where we'll discuss the solution of the case. But for now, let's go back to a rainy night in 1920s London and dig into Whose Body. Sharon, we're coming in on page one of Whose Body, and we're being introduced to a character who's described as having a long, amiable face that looked as if it had generated spontaneously from his top hat as white maggots breed from Gorgonzola. And this is our introduction to Lord Peter Whimsey. <laughs> Quite the hero, right? <laughs> Just the uh, really, really ripe for romantic fantasy and so forth. <laughs> You know, I was reading a little bit of background today and reading some summaries of some of the criticisms that have been leveled against Sayers and how one of them is how she made Peter too perfect. I'm just like, but she did compare him to maggots on day one. (laughs) Well, but also, also a good Gorgonzola. That's true. Not to be underestimated. Yes, maybe she's just really into cheese. Aren't we all? Aren't we all into cheese? (laughs) So tell me a little bit about your impressions from these first pages. I mean, I think it was interesting for me to revisit this and kind of discover how much of what I come to know as Peter's physical description actually doesn't happen this early on. Mm. Later, you know, we come to learn that he has a long nose and that he has this very aristocratic bearing and and he can be quite formidable. But yeah, as sort of a first description, there's quite a lot left to the imagination, which I find interesting. And I was also noticing this time, the fact that he lives in Piccadilly in what is described as a block of new, perfect and expensive flats. So there's this almost distancing of the aristocratic self, right? We learn much later on in the books that the Denver dukedom goes back hundreds of years. But here, Peter is more associated with the new and the novel and the expensive, almost in this kind of nouveau riche way that separates him from his family and from the the kind of lineage that, that he comes from. 
Yeah, and I don't know. I feel like Sayers really leads with that silly-ass persona of his. That you come to find out that he, it's often kind of this front that he puts on. But right now, I mean, between the maggots and the expensive flats and the fact that he's trying to get to an auction, he seems quite silly, I think. Yeah, the really leaning into the Wooster aspect of him. But then we get really quickly to this delightful conversation that he has on the phone with his mother. And then the following conversation with Bunter. (laughs) What does he say? Her grace tells me that a respectable Battersea architect has discovered a dead man in his bath. And dear Bunter says, that's very gratifying, my lord. (laughs) The irreverence that we're introduced to right off the bat in Peter's attitude is really interesting because, of course, that attitude shifts as we get a little further into the book and he has a little bit of a crisis of conscience. Conscience? Conscience. Conscience. What are words? <laughs> are things I can't say. Well, a word that I could not say for a long time was pince-nez, which <laughs> features prominently in this book, because I, like so many precocious readers, encountered it only in text for a long time and was was just convinced it was pince-nez. So a little, little bit of background about me. <laughs> so having been introduced to the silly ass about town character of Peter. He runs off to see this dead body. And we're introduced to the architect Thips, who is such a humorous character. He's a little bit sad. And he's so self-aware of the class difference between himself and Lord Peter. And that plays out, I think, for humor a lot in these, like, this Mm -hmm. encounter that happens in the first chapter. I think something interesting that even as the class stuff is played for humor, you do get this sense later on that Phipps and poor Gladys are, because of their class standing, a lot more vulnerable to just the arm of the law, right? They get taken mm-hmm. up and, and charged as suspects and the inspector doesn't seem willing to account for all the little discrepancies that Peter is pointing out. Right. There's no evidence whatsoever except for the presence of a dead body in the bathroom. <laughs> Which, you know, often. (laughs) Which is a a little bit of a something. But right. I mean, poor Thips really gets run roughshod during the Mm -hmm. inquest. And I think, I mean, this isn't really a fully formed thought. But, you know, Peter really, in the sort of genre of detective fiction that Sayers is working with up to this point, I think Peter might be the first aristocratic detective. There's certainly, I mean, there's gentleman detectives, but... It's mm-hmm. generally when you're coming out of Victorian literature, like the private detective who doesn't do it for their living, you know, maybe tends to be a little bit more upper class, but detectives from the police are always middle class to, you know, almost a little bit vulgarly, upwardly mobile from the working class. And I just kind of thinking about this in, in relation to the next book that we're going to read, Clouds of Witness, where, spoiler alert, Peter's brother, the Duke, is accused of murder and just how differently the law plays out for, you know, a peer, right? Someone where the, mm-hmm. this, the, the novel is going to revolve around, oh, he has to be tried in the House of Lords versus poor little Mr. Thipps, the architect, and poor Gladys, who just get thrown in the clapper immediately. Well, and speaking of upwardly mobile middle class detectives... We have a middle-class detective in this book in Inspector Parker. Yes. 
I guess, Detective Inspector Parker, who is Whimsy's sort of gate key into these investigations. Yeah, Parker's the one who brings in the fact that Sir Reuben Levy is missing and complicates the... I mean, I don't know if you can ever call it a case wherein there is a naked dead body in a bathtub. Uncomplicated, but <laughs> but he, you know, he one case turns into two. And this is the thing that Peter's trying to figure out for most of the book is, right. do these mysteries fit together or not? Do you think that at the beginning, he's thinking at all that they fit together? Or is he just thinking that there he started two hairs at once, and the similarities are coincidental? Because the thing is that Inspector Sugg connects the two cases. And it seems to me that Parker and Whimsy are both very dismissive of that. They're just like, oh, yes, a a dead man with no clothes has appeared here and a man with no clothes has disappeared over there. And so they must be the same. And they're laughing about how simplistic Sugg's attitude is. I mean, Peter says Suggs is like a detective in a novel, (laughs) which is I mean, there's so many pointed little bits in this book. You know, if we were in Sherlock Holmes, we'd be doing blah or if we were in a detective novel, this thing would happen. <laughs> I don't know at which point he starts thinking that they might be one mystery. Well, I think that it's something organic that happens later in the book. Mm-hmm. We're getting towards the end where we're treading on dangerous ground. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the book, Peter's realization about the solution of the case comes to him all at once. Right. And it talks about how he doesn't see part of the thing. He doesn't doubt it all. He just sees the whole thing all at once. And he's absolutely Mm -hmm. sure of it. I think that there's this way in which they maybe both have an intuition. Mm -hmm. But for, yeah, for a lot of the book, it is presented more as Parker kind of asking for Peter's help on his case. And then these coincidences kind of keep cropping up. So we've wandered off a little bit from the body in the bath. Yes. Well, Cars, I came across a really interesting tidbit about that. I was doing a little bit of background looking into... Sayers' letters and other bits about her life around the time that she was writing or composing the first draft of Whose Body. And she wrote a letter to her mother in 1921. I believe it's the first mention of Whose Body in her letters. And she says, my detective story begins brightly with a fat lady found dead in her bath with nothing on but her pince-nez. Now, why did she wear pince-nez in her bath? If you can guess, you will be in a position to lay hands upon the murderer, but he's a very cool and cunning fellow. Which, I mean, (laughs) the story we end up with does not, (laughs) strays quite a bit from that early synopsis. On a couple of counts, because obviously the pince-nez are kind of a red herring, and it's no longer the body of a fat woman. Right, it's it's a middle-aged man. (laughs) Yes, and I think that that is a very interesting alteration in the story. And that seems to me, based on some research that you and I have been doing into Sayer's life, it seems that that is something that kind of came out of personal experiences of her own. I mean, on the one hand, there's part of me that's the author's dead, we don't care. (laughs) And not in a that Dorothy Sayers is actually dead, which she is, but just as a way of reading literature and not looking really at authorial intent. But yeah, her biographical details are certainly suggestive. So Sharon, Why don't you tell our good listeners a little bit about what was going on in Sayer's life that might have brought about this abrupt change in the narrative? (laughs) No, the author's dead. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> it's fine. Yeah, so Sayers's sort of 20s were really marked by, I mean, you know, maybe millennials now would find this very familiar, but a lot of financial insecurity. She really floundered a bit after she left Oxford. She was one of the first women to be granted a degree there. But afterward, you know, she tried teaching for a bit. She was tutoring, had a really difficult time getting a, a foothold financially into adulthood. And so, you know, that's when she comes up with this idea to give Peter all of the things that she couldn't have, like a car and nice food and <laughs> you know, dressing gown and a butler and so forth. But she was also embroiled in a couple of very unhappy love affairs, one with a man named John Cornos, who will become much more significant when we read Strong Poison, and another man named Bill White, who she ended up having a child out of wedlock with, and nobody knew this about her for a very long time. But the the thing that is possibly significant here is that Cornos was a Russian Jewish Englishman. And he, the old fashioned parlance would be he threw her over because he claimed that he did not believe in marriage and wanted her to consummate their physical relationship using contraception. And she felt that both those things were very against her beliefs. So yeah, possibly she, you know, didn't feel great about Semites during the time of composing this novel. Yeah, that's an aspect of this novel that we kind of have to confront the anti-Semitism that lurks in it, and which is something that has been debated more than one of Sayre's biographers have kind of tackled the subject. And some of them say that she wasn't, she just dealt in stereotypes of the time. And some of them say that, yes, she obviously was. I think that I really come down on the side of... It doesn't matter if she meant it or not. <laughs> right. It doesn't matter whether it was intentional or not. It's clearly there. Do you want to talk a bit about some of those instances for our listeners? I mean, we haven't mentioned so far, I think, in the podcast that the body found in the bath is described as having Jewish features and that Sir Reuben Levy, the financier who has disappeared, is a Jewish man. And there's little tidbits of conversation that happen between the characters. So Peter has a conversation with his mother, the Dowager Duchess, where she's telling him a little bit about the family history and about how um, Lady Levy used to be Christine Ford and ran off to marry, that there was trouble about her marrying a Jew. And the way that the Dowager Duchess talks is very run on, very fluttery, and she substitutes words incorrectly sometimes. But she says, I'm sure some Jews are very good people. And personally, mm -hmm. I'm, I'd much rather they believed something. Though, of course, it must be very inconvenient, what with not working on Saturdays and circumcising the poor little babies and everything, depending on the new mood. <laughs> and that funny kind of meat they have with such a slang sounding name and never being able to have bacon for breakfast. And it's funny. But it also, there is a lot of othering the Jewish people. That happens by all the characters, even when they seem to be being positive. Yes. Even Freddie Arbuthnot, who is interested in marrying Sir Reuben's daughter, is kind of dismissive of the Jewish faith of the family. Mm -hmm. He's just kind of like, oh, it's irrelevant to me, as opposed to it being something that should be important. Right. Could possibly deeply matter. <laughs> right. 
Well, and I feel like throughout most of the characters, I mean, it's sort of that classic racist thing to write of, uh, well, he's one of the good ones. Mm. You you kind of get that from most of the characters. I mean, even Sir Reuben's own manservant, yeah. Mr. Graves says, where is it? Mr. Graves says to Bunter, I don't hold with Hebrews as a rule, but you know, no one could call Sir Reuben vulgar. And my lady, at any rate, is county. Miss Ford, she was one of the Hampshire Fords, and both of them always most considerate. So yeah, it's sort of this aspect of people approve of or like or don't mind Sir Reuben because he's one of the good ones or a credit to his race or not like all of those other ones. And and that is really uncomfortable. That's, yeah. Yeah. There's very much an element of mm-hmm. in spite of that. Ah, he's a good man in spite yeah. of. And it really plays into some really just uncomfortable, I think, orientalist tropes of, you know, men of color coming over and marrying our women. I mean, the fact that they keep pointing to that Lady Levy was Christine Ford. She was gentry. Mm -hmm. She was English. Of course, then we also get into some of the other aspects, like the fact that Sir Reuben Levy is portrayed as being very kind, very considerate, very devoted to his family, like a gentle, thoughtful person. And I I think that you found in Sayer's letters her response to someone's accusation that there's some thrusts against the Jewish race. Yes. Not that it means a ton to me, uh, personally, because mm-hmm. there are many things authors can put in their works that they didn't, you know, mean to. But yeah, she writes Yeah, so she wrote a letter in nineteen thirty six. Uh someone had been asking her about a French translation of Whose Body, and she gives permission for it. And I suppose, I guess, I mean, from context, it seems like she had been asked by the translator if they could, quote, soften the thrusts against the Jews if they'd like. Um, And her response is, they certainly can, if there are any. My own opinion is that the only people who were presented in a favorable light were the Jews. So, Mm. yeah, a lot to unpack there. I think more than anything, what that letter demonstrates is her own lack of awareness Mm -hmm. of her bias, which is something that I think is really incredibly relevant today. You know, we see dramas play out on Twitter between authors and books that are being questioned, where there's a tendency for an author to say, that's not what I meant and expect that to be fine. Mm-hmm. But we are, we've also reached a point socially where I feel like people are not prepared to accept anyone's intentions because what do intentions matter if the harm right. is done, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it's, I don't know. I think it's also this complicated thing where so much of detective fiction in particular, especially of this period, I mean, not that, you know, she was of her time as an excuse, but So much of detective fiction actually relies on tropes and stereotype. And Sayers is certainly relying on a lot of tropes. I mean, not even just with Sir Reuben Levy, but Peter being the empty-headed aristocrat and Parker sort of being the plotting workhorse uh, sidekick. And there's a lot of that going on. Bunter is the gentleman's gentleman. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I think it's interesting that Sayers shows a lot of self-awareness elsewhere Mm -hmm. in the book. You know, she shows a lot of self-awareness about the tropes of a mystery novel. She shows a lot of self-awareness about 
the ramifications of this kind of situation on a character's Mm -hmm. mental health, which is something that we may get into maybe in the next episode. But she completely lacks self-awareness about the racial bias. And I think something that I think we'll get into a lot more in later books is that she shows a a lack of self-awareness about Mm -hmm. the classism. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to me (laughs) that she just was completely unable to see her own bias in those two areas, especially. something I, you know, I kind of want to develop as a a through line for our own inquiry is I feel like she starts, I mean, we've talked a little bit already about kind of the ways that class plays into this book and how Thips and Gladys and Sug and sort of these other, you know, lower class characters are, are portrayed as, you know, not necessarily more, more vulgar, but more common than Peter and the Dowager Duchess and so forth. Uh, Even Bunter is sort of at pains. He doesn't want to be like those other servants. He's a gentleman's servant. So it's kind of interesting to see how he interacts with uh, Sir Reuben Levy's servants and so forth when he needs to get information out of them. He sort of puts on this persona of being Mm -hmm. uh, a lot more put upon than than he actually is or uh, more resentful of the aristocratic classes. But I, I also think that there's something here and you know maybe Sayers wasn't even aware of it but there's there's kind of this idea too that certain classes and particularly the servant class has access to if not more specialized than a different kind of knowledge than the aristocracy does and that this knowledge is somehow a bit impenetrable to the aristocracy right there's a reason Peter sends Bunter to go and kind of get the information out of the serving maids and, and the valets and so forth. Um, right. Because Peter is sort of too many steps of class above the laboring class such that they just wouldn't tell him what he needs to know. It's kind of like jumping far ahead in Have His Carcass. There's a throwaway mention of one of the characters points out to the police that they have probably made inquiries into their life. And they're just like, yes, we spoke to your mm-hmm. charwoman, which the charwoman was like a house cleaner who would do the heavy labor, like they would be the person who were taking out the rubbish, doing the heavy cleaning. It's something that's going to come up in some of the later books that even the people who were considered poor, a lot of the time still have people who do work Mm -hmm. for them. Even people who are considered poor are still going to have a charwoman who still does some of that heavy labor for them. So this idea that the police went to that to the charwoman or you know you know like it's always like I mean like yes we interviewed your garbage man um to get an idea of of who you are as a person right because we figured that they know and the idea that they're the ones who really know right that there is a public face that mm-hmm. people might put on but that it's sort of when you're at home it's inescapable that your servants have access to a kind of private self that other people wouldn't see so it's actually I don't know if this was a deliberate inversion of power differentials. It would delight me if it was, but it's it's something that I think definitely is part of the text as well, even as we are kind of critiquing Sayers' own lack of understanding of her class biases. Speaking of servants, yes. should we talk about how hideously underpaid Bunter is? So underpaid. So dear listeners, Karas did a little bit of digging into this and I feel like there's a clickbait title <laughs> or, or at least a hashtag of, you know, justice for Bunter, <laughs> money for Mervyn. Yes, hashtag money for Mervyn. And now I can't remember what the actual numbers were. We know from the conversation in chapter two that Bunter is paid 200 pounds a year. And 200 pounds 
1923. Let's see. According to this UK inflation calculator on the internet, do math. I'll get an English degree. I'll never have to do math again. <laughs> okay, so according to this internet calculator, 200 pounds in 1923 is the equivalent of approximately 11,496 pounds in 2017. Which is... Now I'm going to, we should also talk about how Sayers portrays Americans, but I'm going to be very American and go, how many US dollars is that, Karis? <laughs> that is about 14,500 US dollars. Oh boy. <laughs> the most damning thing is that two sentences above the place where Peter says, Bunter, I pay you 200 pounds a year to keep your thoughts to yourself. Peter's talking about how he just paid 750 pounds for a, a book. A dirty old um, book in a dead language. Yes. And how he thinks 50 pounds might be a ridiculous price for like a piece of camera equipment that, that Bunter was asking him to buy so that Bunter could further assist him in detection. <laughs> I'm just, this is just terrible. It's like, what, what is money? What is it? What is, what is money? What indeed? There's, I've seen a quote from a show that I don't even watch where it's like a rich person and it's being just like, how much does a banana cost? $10? (laughs) (laughs) From Arrested Development. (laughs) Yeah. I know. I feel like sometimes people are like, why, why is there so much, why do the younger generations have so much college debt? How much could it possibly cost to obtain a college degree? $20? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, presumably Bunter also gets room and board for free, but still. Sure. And and sometimes when he's, you know, as later on when he's buttering up a suspect, he gets to smoke Lord Peter's cigars and drink Lord Peter's brandy. <laughs> but Which he, still. he richly deserves. Yeah. Just amazing that Bunter did not burn everything down in just the very first right. book of the series. <laughs> But the thing is that Bunter is very much portrayed as a caretaker. Yes. We learn a little bit later in the book that he served with Peter in World War One in the Great War, and that he feels a certain amount of devotion to him. Mm-hmm. I think we'll talk more in the next episode about Peter's PTSD. But we know that Bunter was very instrumental in kind of nursing him back to health and bringing him back to a point where he could participate in society after he came back from the war very badly shell-shocked. And so in addition to being just like horrifically underpaid for doing any kind of job, any kind of (laughs) full-time 24-7 job, (laughs) is the fact that Bunter's presence is what makes Peter's lifestyle possible. Yes. His assistance, um, his understanding, like if I think if Peter had just any other manservant who didn't understand him as deeply, who didn't anticipate his needs as well, Peter's life couldn't possibly be as fulfilling and as complex as it is, because in many ways, Bunter is doing a tremendous amount of emotional labor in addition to the physical labor for which he is tremendously underpaid. <laughs> right. I mean, Karis, is Bunter Peter's wife? 
<laughs> and I don't mean that in I don't mean that in a sexual way. Just that is um, that is. I mean, there's. If I say yes, I feel like there's a lot of gender politics to start unpacking about what the role of a wife is in a relationship. But, I mean, but okay, like <laughs> yeah, but but for it, real, is Bunter yes. performing a kind of feminized caretaking, emotional bodily needs labor that traditionally, historically, <laughs> societally within patriarchy <laughs> has often been associated with women. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Although this brings up an interesting segue, which is not in our planned notes. So I'm going to ask you to forgive me for springing this on you. How dare you? Another relationship that strikes me as having similarities which is loosely tied to Sayers because they were acquaintances, is Tolkien's relationship between Frodo and Samwise. Oh, yeah. And Sam is absolutely Frodo's wife. Yes, absolutely. And we're, you know, like... (laughs) Sorry, Tolkien scholars. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's like, it's absolutely a case where you have two male characters and one of them is emotionally vulnerable and one of the, and feels bound to a task of some kind and the other one is of a lower class and devoted to them and dedicated to their well-being including doing the emotional labor of caring for them yes. and i wonder given the fact that these come out of a similar time period which lord of the rings wasn't published until later but like i think as we all know it was it drew a lot on Tolkien's experience in the Great War Mm -hmm. and kind of the relationships that I think that men had with each other, like in the trenches, which was a new and terrible experience of what war was. And I'm like, I wonder how much those two portrayals tie together. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly I think there's, there's a long literary tradition of, Mm. which was based kind of on how English society had put itself together historically of kind of assuming that the homosocial bonds between men, the bonds of being comrades and friends and intellectual partners and brothers in arms would go to the same, if not greater depths than romantic mm-hmm. love between men and women. Right. And there, and there's a lot mm-hmm. written also, you know, sort of homosocial love among women at the time. I mean, just with, right with societies where there was maybe more assumptions about, I don't know, inherent gender differences or kind of the relationships people were allowed to have. I I certainly think that that's reading those two, you know, I I mean, not even really master servant, but just caretaker, caretakey Mm -hmm. relationships together makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have a segue away from that. (laughs) I just threw that out. Well, I think, I mean, I just wrote in the margin when Bunter's very useful hobby of photography came up, like, "Mm, how convenient. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, as the perfect servant, you know, who who completely anticipates Peter's needs, of course, he would take up photography. (laughs) No, of course. I like to think that in his spare time, maybe Bunter goes and photographs roses in the gardens or something. (laughs) (laughs) Karis, is it time for you to go into raptures about the Dowager Duchess? (laughs) It's always time for me to go into raptures about the Tower to Duchess. I, I just... mean, speaking of caretaking and, you know, <laughs> women. <laughs> yes, I just love her. She's so funny. And, you know, we get, we first meet her in that very opening scene where she calls on the telephone. 
to casually mention to her son who's interested in crime <laughs> that a mutual acquaintance has found a dead body in his bath. No big deal, Peter. <laughs> we meet her briefly again when Lord Peter takes Mr. Thipps' mother because she has no one to take care of her because Mr. Thipps and their maid have been arrested. He takes Mrs. Thipps to stay with his own mother and she very helpfully tells him a little bit of backstory about the Levy family. Just casually drops it into conversation. But the next time we meet her is after Peter has gone to talk to a character and pumped him for information and told him an outrageous lie about how the Dowager Duchess is throwing a bazaar and wants him to come give a talk. And then the Dowager Duchess is confronted with Mr. Mulligan at a luncheon and he starts telling her about how he's so excited to come to her bazaar. And she doesn't know what he's talking about. But she just rolls with it. She just rolls with she's it. She's so great. She's so she's, she's the embodiment of yes and. <laughs> to the point that when Peter finally shows up in a panic over how she may have ruined his story, she tells him to go away because she's not done talking to Mr. Mulligan about the bazaar yet. And all the money that he's going to spend to sponsor it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really, I mean, if you're going to put an American, is he a railroad baron or an oil yes. baron? Yes. No, he's a railroad king. If you put in an American railroad king into your, your novel, you, you really should get him to endow at least three little country churches. <laughs> right. Oh, I just, I was calling him Mulligan, but he's Milligan. Milligan. Mm. Milligan. Yes. And of course, the Dowager Duchess is kind of the vehicle by which we hear about some of the inquest because she's telling yes. people about it at the luncheon. And her account of it is so funny because she inserts her own, like she's a very, a character with a very strong voice. Like she really inserts her own opinion about everything. Mm -hmm. And it's a really clever way for the, the narration to kind of add a little more flair. I suppose, mm -hmm. to certain things that, you know, I, I mean, I feel like one of the sort of difficulties in writing a mystery must be that you always have to give some kind of backstory. In an English murder mystery, there's usually an inquest. So how do you keep these things interesting? And yeah. I think the Dowager Duchess is used to great effect in <laughs> sort of inserting a little more just fun into yeah. <laughs> the proceeding. So yeah, in a mystery novel where you need to dump information in your reader's ears, a chatty, funny old woman is just about the best vehicle I think you can have. <laughs> yes. Because as you know, I work in a library and I work at the <laughs> circulation desk and I check out books to many elderly people who are delightful. And many of them want to tell you so many things about themselves and their lives and the lives of everyone they know. <laughs> and like, I think it's it's totally believable for this elderly woman to just spill the beans on everything to two specific people, of course, like she's a, a lady with discretion, but she'll tell Peter. Mm -hmm. And it will just all come tumbling out. And I do think that there's a little bit of a hint that when she's spilling all this information, there's a little bit of a wink and a nod that she knows that she's telling them useful things. But she's mm -hmm. pretending not to be involved in the investigation. Right. There's this beautiful line where Peter says something along the lines of, like, my mother tries to pretend that the detective side of my life doesn't exist, which is so patently false because, I mean, she loves the fact that he's a detective, right? She loves yes. being useful 
to him and and yeah doling out this information and going to inquests and but you know but she has to kind of pretend maybe that she she doesn't Uh, I think the line is right here at the beginning of the book where Lord Peter is grinning at the telephone while she's telling him about the dead body. The Duchess was always the greatest assistance to his hobby of criminal investigation, though she never alluded to it, and it maintained a polite fiction of its (laughs) non-existence. That's so great. (laughs) Now, there is another important character that we've only talked about a little, which Mm -hmm. is Detective Inspector Parker. Yes, dear Charles. I love him so much. Dear Charles, who does so much work. So much work. Charles and Bunter are the ones doing all the heavy lifting. (laughs) Justice for Charles. (laughs) Justice for Charles. There's that part where I think one chapter ends with you know, Peter sending off a telegram and saying, you know, Charles, do you mind terribly just you know, popping over <laughs> to Surrey or wherever uh, to do X, Y, Z. And then the, the very next chapter starts along the lines of Mr. Charles Parker, in fact, did mind. <laughs> <laughs> or, oh, here it is. It was, in fact, inconvenient for Mr. Parker to leave London. Oh, dear Parker. And there's also a bit where Whimsy swans off to have lunch and leaves Parker just doing all the painstaking work, like going through Sir Reuben's papers. And then Parker is the one who goes and interviews all the tenants who live in the block of flats where the body was found. Because Parker's just like, well, you won't do it. (laughs) So I'd better... He really is set up as the foil for Peter in many ways, I think. He is. In chapter five, I'm I'm struck by how much the initial, dis- or, or not initial, but this description of Parker. Mr. Parker was a bachelor and occupied a Georgian but inconvenient flat at number 12A Great Ormond Street, for which he paid a pound a week. Like there's, there's the attentiveness to his living quarters, I think is really only there to contrast with Peter's new and expensive and perfect flat in Piccadilly. And he, you know, he only has the one housekeeper who, she's not even his housekeeper, his landlady who, quote unquote, did for him by the day, (laughs) sneezing into his breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) So horrible. You know, Parker could be such a one dimensional foil for Peter, but he's given a lot more depth and I do just love him. Yes. He reads theology, <laughs> like not yes. shallow theology. He's He reads like the hard hitters. But I think Sayers was such an observer of people and such a student, I think, of human nature that she couldn't help rounding out her characters, even small characters. And it's interesting the way that that dovetails with her use of, you know, falling into stereotypes yes if that makes sense that those it seems on the one hand every small character seems to have a life of their own and on the other hand yeah on the other hand she's just falling back kind of carelessly and thoughtlessly Mm -hmm. on some unfortunate stereotypes i mean you know not to wrap back in our conversation too much but i guess we do have to talk about the fact that sir reuben is a corpse i mean you know so in the sense of to Mm -hmm. to be fair to sayers she's rounding out all these characters who you know even the bit roles that are kind of marginal or come across the page briefly but yeah there's no real opportunity to do that if the character you're stereotyping is dead which i mean 
you know, there's, there's maybe a lot more we can unpack there. But I don't know if it makes me wish that she just maybe inserted a couple more Jewish characters that she could have given that Sayer's touch to or I mean, I guess one way, you know, if we were to read it, without Sayers in mind, we could say these are kind of the what we get about Sir Reuben is almost never from the point of view of a, any kind of omniscient narrator, right? It's always reported. It's always secondhand mm. from these other characters right. who also themselves may not have any other way of describing a Jewish character other than falling on stereotype. Like they, there's this weird way in which even as they're praising him, they're denying him any kind of interiority, right? He has to be noble and good and dedicated to his wife and never set a foot wrong so that they will think better of him. And I think maybe as we get into in the next episode, especially as we talk about the suspects and the the whodunit and the reveal, I don't know, maybe there's there's more we can we can do with that and kind of the contrasts that are set up there. Yeah. There are some very interesting ideas there. I think that even as Sayer's own anti-Semitic bias is shown in the book, that she was like, this is the problem I run into with Sayer's, where I always feel like in the places where she kind of fails, I always feel like she was reaching for something and fell short Mm -hmm. because she failed to acknowledge her own bias. Right. I think, and that's something I feel it's going to come up again and again. Like it's going to come up for sure in Gaudy Night. Oh, we're going to have so much to talk about. <laughs> so much. Like Gaudy Night is, we're going to take so many episodes <laughs> because we're going to be torn between like arguing about the classism and crying about punts. <laughs> it's going to be complicated. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I'm always like some time ago, you and I had a conversation about Gaudy Night where I, I said that I thought that Sayers meant to explore the classism and she just didn't quite get all the way mm-hmm. there. And then like a couple of years later, I had to go back to you and be like, so I've thought about it some more. And I realized that I was just trying to let Sayers off because I love her. <laughs> and that really she backed down from digging as much into that question as she mm-hmm. could have. And I think that that is the same here where Sayers just didn't believe that she had a bias. And so that prevented her from seeing how much she not only had it, but incorporated it into her work. And it's easy to speculate about did the fact that she had a failed love affair with a Jewish man create animosity? Or did the fact that she wanted to marry, like, because she wanted to marry her Mm -hmm. lover. And I would have to research this a little bit more to be sure. So listeners, don't take this as fact, but I believe that one of the reasons he gave for not wanting to marry her was because she wasn't Jewish and wouldn't convert. But she makes a point of presenting a mixed faith household in a positive Mm -hmm. light, including very minor spoiler for our listeners, but including the fact that in the future, she does marry Freddie Arbuthnot off to Reuben Levy's daughter. And so there are mixed faith marriages happening in the Mm -hmm. background. And that it's not just that Sir Reuben was devoted to his wife, Lady Levy was devoted to him as well. So it's kind of this early example in Sayers of what is portrayed as a very equal marriage. In some ways, I feel like, and this is like, this is reaching a little bit. And this is 
probably leading too much into what was the author <laughs> thinking. But I find myself asking, to what degree was Sayers kind of rubbing in her former lover's face? Like, look, this is what we could have had. Mm -hmm. This is the perfect marriage we could have had. But also the fact that, you know, she's written a book where terrible violence is enacted on a body similar to his, you know? Yeah. I think that's something to dig into a little bit more in, in the next episode, because we're skating a little close to the edge of talking too much about who the murderer mm -hmm. is. But yeah, those are those are questions that I have that I don't know that it's possible to definitively answer, because I don't know that those are things that Sayers would have maybe admitted even to herself, you know, like that, the answer to that is not going to be in her letters. No, but that is why it's so fun to ask these questions. <laughs> So next time we'll take up some of these questions again and talk about the conclusion of the mystery, as well as some other overall themes that we didn't get a chance to get to this time. And I will also be asking Karis about the armchair. I have feelings about the armchair. I don't even know what armchair you're talking about. So <laughs> something to look forward to for next time. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode on Whose Body. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at WhimsyPod. That's Whimsy spelled W-I-M-S-E-Y. Our website, where you can find transcripts for each episode, as well as links to any resources we mentioned on today's podcast, is asmywhimsytakesme.com. Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd be really grateful if you would give us a rating and leave us a review on iTunes or on your podcaster of choice. We also hope that you'll tell all of your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do. See you next time for more Talking Piffle.